Thanks, Jim. I'm Carl Quintanilla in for Brian Sullivan tonight. Elon Musk versus ChatGPT, the Tesla chief, creates a competitor to take on the hottest name in AI. We've got breaking developments. Maximum turbulence, fresh fallout for Boeing 737 MAX jet woes. Will it put the CEO's job at risk? A swung song for remote work, why your pay could end up being tied to how much you show up at the office. What does the Fox say? The blockbuster trial between Fox and Dominion voting systems kicks off Monday. How will it impact the Murdoch family and its empire? And the NBA's flagrant fine for Mark Cuban's Dallas Mavericks. That and much more. Last Call is up right now. Good Friday evening from CNBC Global Headquarters. We'll get to all those stories shortly. First up, though, earnings season kicking off with a surprise bang. Big banks are shrugging off last month's crisis. Shares of J.P. Morgan up 7%. Record revenue thanks to higher rates. Also an unexpected jump in deposits in the wake of the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Similar story over at Citi and Wells. Shares of Citi popping nearly 5%. Wells ended flat. Next week, Bank of America, Goldman, Morgan Stanley are all up. Many are going to watch broker giant Schwab. But it's the regional banks that investors will go over with a fine-tooth comb searching for any cracks from the SVB fallout. Let's bring in Tasty Trade CEO Tom Sosnoff and Empire Financial Research Senior Editor and CNBC contributor Herb Greenberg. Guys, good evening. Great to have you both. Tom, uh, was this any kind of all clear uh, for, the, for the banking sector at large today? For the top-tier banks, it was, Carl. I mean, there's no question that the market kind of gave the all-clear sign on the top tier banks. Uh, it didn't say the same thing about the regional banks, but it, you know, there was a big question going into today whether, whether or not there was something hidden on the bottom of the balance sheet for the big banks. And I think they, they cleared that hurdle. I'm not saying I would jump in here, but I think they cleared that hurdle. Yeah. What, Herb, have we moved at least from liquidity crisis to maybe a story where it's er long-term earnings pressures or maybe uh, tighter credit conditions that are gonna play out over a, like a low-grade fever, are gonna play out over time? Hey, Carl, wouldn't it be interesting if even if the if banking earnings next quarter, you know, we can start talking about next quarter, don't aren't as good as they are right now. Wouldn't it be interesting if there are banking issues that they've sort of become normalized because things move so quickly now that people sort of are expecting a problem? And obviously, you know, the regionals are the ones everybody's going to be watching for clues to that. And, and I would argue there are actually some surprises or there could be some surprises there that people aren't expecting. Uh, there was, there's a guy I know who, uh, Brad Taffalo at FPA Research, today he tweeted he does surveys of small businesses. And one thing they told him was they're not changing their banking relationship. So wouldn't it be interesting if the deposits don't fall as much as people expect? So, you know, we've got the uncertainties, but I, I think we could have some surprise. Herb, I know, um, you know, for example, uh, discussion about the consumer today over at J.P. Morgan. Still a lot of excess cash. If there is a recession, maybe that could, gets pushed out a bit. Can I get you tonight to say there'll be no recession? <laughs> I know where you're going with this. <laughs> well, you can get me to say you can get me to say that everybody has been expecting a recession for at least a year right now uh, at this point, And there has been no recession. And when everybody is expecting something, the contrarian in me wants to say, maybe not now. We know things are slowing. We know inflation is there. We know it's difficult. There's a guy, Donald Brown. Donald Brown is one of the great truck analysts out there. He's pretty adamant based on the figures he's seen that the trucking recession is over. And he believes that it's actually signaling we may be able to avoid a, a recession, certainly a serious one. 
Tom, uh, Schwab, next week, what's on the line? Uh, they brought in $53 billion in new inflows in March. That's their second best March uh, in history, really. But what do they need to say consistently about their business? CEO has been buying stock. Is there a lot on the line? I think there is a lot on the line for Schwab. I mean, you know, they're the they're the too big to fail in the brokerage space. And I think there's a lot of concerns about the back end of their balance sheet and what kind of, you know, I mean, their brokerage business is totally fine. It's probably killing it. I think that's where most of the money came in. And I think that part of the business is as strong as ever. I'm guessing that their bank business let them down. And I think that that's a really tough thing because there's not too many, when you look at the history of the brokerage business and the banking business, you know, when you think about E-Trade going back to 2008, it was their it was their banking and mortgage business that took them down. And when you think about Bear Stearns and Lehman and everybody else, it was their banking business that took them down. So I think that, you know, that's the biggest concern for Schwab. I, I think they're, I think they have plenty of liquidity and they're probably way too big to fail. But I think that there's going to be questions they're going to linger on for quite some time. You know, they've got an ugly bank balance sheet and no other brokerage firm has that. So I think that's going to be that's going to be heavy. It's going to sit on top of Schwab for a while. I do want to get your guys opinion on regs uh, today. Jamie Dimon said, look, there doesn't need to be a revamp of rules, uh, maybe some refining on this on the edges. Uh, I just wonder at this point tonight, Herb, what's Treasury saying to themselves? What is FDIC saying? What is Congress saying about uh, things that they thought they might have had to do that maybe they, they now they don't? Well, regional banks certainly will be, in, again, in the spotlight. But I think that the one thing they all have to acknowledge is that banking deposits are a business transaction. And going back to what, you know, going back to SVB, you cannot lose money on banking deposits. They have to figure this out and they have to acknowledge that. And whether it means fees will be higher, fees the banks will, will charge for people with larger uh insurance uh, levels and what the caps are, I think that's going to be very important. Yeah. Tom, the other thing is, I mean, slowly, but we are getting a little relief in some of these rate levels, which if you have a, a large, say, hold to maturity portfolio, maybe you can go ahead and take that loss if you've got enough capital uh, to cover it. I just wonder, do you think there'll be some who will be looking for the, the first exit ramp that they find? I, I, don't, I don't think so. It's not really part of their model. I think that's a, that's, that's a tough ask. I think you have a better chance of some regulatory clarity coming into the space over the next, you know, whatever it is, the next six months, nine months, year, whatever it is. And I don't think it's that that challenging a regulatory um, decision that has to be made here. I think it's actually pretty easy. I think you just have to limit duration on certain types of deposit, demand deposits. And I think you have to establish some kind of a mark to market like everybody else has in the entire world of, of financial services. And then I think you've pretty much solved the problem. You know, banking is not a very complex business. Somebody deposits money, you're not supposed to lose it. It's that simple. It's, it's you know, we, we look at this like it's much more complex than that. It's really not. Yeah. Hey, finally, Herb, does this move the needle for the Fed? And what do you say to those who are out there arguing that one more hike would turn them from bulls into bears? I, I, I'm in the one more hike camp. So uh, just because they have no choice, they, they can't afford to have people think they're going to start cutting. They cannot do that. They have to show they're still in control. Um, and uh, but I, again, I think it's been normalized, at least uh, to the, you know, to many of us. Yeah. Good to see both of you guys. What a day <laughs> and what a week we've got ahead of us. Uh, Tom and Herb, thanks so much. Coming up next, watch out, chat GPT. Elon Musk just created a new AI company. Breaking developments are coming up next. Then Boeing's new production woes for the 737 Max. Could the CEO be shown the door? Stay with us.
some breaking developments in the generative AI race. The Financial Times reports Elon Musk is officially getting in the game by starting his own artificial intelligence company. And it has a name. Musk is calling the company XAI. It'll be incorporated in Nevada, and it appears to be the latest step in Musk's efforts to create an everything app branded as X. Joining us with more on the story, Richard Waters, one of the reporters on that FT piece. Richard, appreciate the time. Here's a man who just days ago signed on to a letter saying we all need to take a pause on the development of AI. What's he up to? Carl, if you were skeptical, you might say that Musk wants everybody else to slow down so he can catch up. So it's exactly a year since Musk bid for Twitter. He's been otherwise engaged for a year, and the tech industry has been on this incredible tear on AI. Uh, Musk has decided you know, he really wants a piece of this action. Uh, as you say, he's set up this company, XAI. Uh, we're reporting that he is out looking for investors. He's talking to some of the same people who backed his other companies, backed his Twitter bid. Um, he's hiring as fast as he can. He wants to build one of those big, large language models we're hearing so much about. He wants to be back in the game. Now, he and OpenAI have a history, obviously. Do we need to start talking about Altman and Musk and Google in the same conversation about this race? You know, Musk wants to put himself in the middle of that conversation. He, well, where else does he want to be? So, as you say, he was one of the original founders of OpenAI, one of the people who got it started. Uh, he fell out with them, uh, I think it was about five years ago now. Uh, and, you know, at the time he said it was because he was developing in Tesla other forms of AI. Uh, you know, we're hearing that there was a lot of tension that he had with the company, with the board. There were some disagreements about exactly you know, what AI safety meant, how hard you should push, how careful you should be with some of these things. Um, so he didn't really see eye to eye. He went off on his own. But now he very much wants to get back in there. He wants to build one of the biggest models out, and he wants to be competitive. Speaking now, everybody in a gold rush is going to need some shovels, right? And I, I think I heard you guys say that NVIDIA would be potentially one of the sources of those chips, how, how is that going to work? How, I mean, how many different giants can a, a, a company like NVIDIA supply? NVIDIA, you know, can supply them all. They all want, they all want GPUs right now from NVIDIA. Um, you know, I think as this game develops, we're going to see other chips in here. We're going to see uh, accelerators from other companies, TPUs from Google, which is desperately trying to track some of these models onto its own platform. So there'll be more chips in there. I think the, the real question, as you say, though, is, you know, these are called foundation models. They're like the foundations to all the applications people want on top. We already know that there are only three really big cloud computing platforms. Uh, how many big, large language models will there be? OpenAI, Google, Amazon's trying to do it, but a whole bunch of startups now. I think Musk's bet is going to be his name attracts talent. Uh, he will want to bring in you know, some of the best engineers to work with him. And he'll say, look at my record. Why wouldn't you bet on me? Finally, we, we, we mentioned in the intro the idea that he's rolling this into some kind of larger business model that we might call X just out of convenience for now. Do you have any sense of what his aspirations are on that front and how that ties back to his very early days in business? Yeah, he's been he's been vague about this, and we're not hearing any more right now. I think it's interesting that XAI is being has been incorporated in Nevada, uh, X Corp 
which is what Twitter has now been rolled into, is in Nevada. Um, his holding company structure is uh, opaque at the moment. We can't see everything. But he is trying to raise capital separately for the AI company. Um, we'll have to wait and see exactly how it all shapes up in time. Richard Waters of the FT, what a story tonight, Richard. Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Meantime, have a job interview coming up. There's apparently one question you should never ask. Can I work remotely? At least according to that's been leading CNBC.com all day. Apparently, it can be an immediate red flag. Employers appear to be pushing for employees to return to the office. J.P. Morgan recently asked its senior managers to start working in the office five days a week. The White House pushing some agencies to have workers return to the office. And if a simple nudge doesn't work, they could always take the Davis Polk route and simply tell them come back or risk a bonus reduction. So is flexible work coming to an end? Joining us to talk about this deeper in the future of remote work is New York Post business reporter Lydia Moynihan and founder and CEO of The Muse, Catherine Minshew. Ladies, great to have you. Lydia, uh, that's three good examples. Is that a trend yet? I think it is. They've tried the carrot with uh, the incentives for quite some time, giving people free meals, and now it's clear they're using the stick of basically threatening to cut pay. I mean, this has been the end game all along. These companies have wanted people back, but they felt that they didn't have the power to do that. They were worried they would make this demand and people wouldn't follow through. We reported at The Post back in September that Jamie Dimon was quietly kind of nudging everyone to return, but clearly didn't feel like he had the power to make that mandate. Well, now, as the labor market is shifting, as we're seeing a recession is likely this year, it seems like they feel they have now the upper hand in this economy and they can make this demand. One point I think is really interesting, though, is I think we're seeing a sort of a trickle-down effect of bringing people back to the office five days a week because Goldman Sachs, which is arguably the most prestigious firm on Wall Street, they demanded people be back in the office pretty much since the beginning of COVID, whereas we've spoken with sources at places like Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, they can't get anyone back. Hmm. You know, Kath, so. it's, it's interesting. There have been people out there who, who have always felt that as the labor market loosened up, that leverage would return to the employer and they would start making demands like this. But then you hear from other CEOs who were like, look, I've got them back three days a week and I'll be happy to sublease some of my space and save some money once my lease rolls off. So where do you think that balance is? Well, I think we're seeing a classic case of mismatch between worker preferences and employer demand. Um, as the CNBC Make It article reported, nearly 80% of managers want their employees to come back into the office at least part of the time. But that is not at all what we're hearing from workers. In fact, The Muse, my platform, recently surveyed over 7,000 American workers and found that 40% want to be fully remote, 40% want to be hybrid, 20% want in-person full-time. And when we ran a similar survey on our sister platform, Fairy Godboss, which is exclusively for professional women, the number of people who wanted to be back in the office full-time was only 1%. So you are seeing employers exercise their leverage to try and force people back. And in some cases, it will work. But I also think that the labor market has a way of uh, correcting itself when either side gets too powerful. And I would hesitate for employers to feel like they can do whatever they want right now and workers will put up with it because that's not that's not going to last. Mm. It, it does make you wonder, Lydia, where I mean, what the number is, say, on unemployment it, 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 that would force employees to say, you know what? OK, you guys win. It's going to be fascinating to watch that push and pull. 
Also, we should add the other wrinkle is that you might ask your juniors to come in at a time when your seniors are still enjoying their country homes for the summer. And that's going to be a source of tension, too. That's actually been really tricky. There was some reporting this week that at Facebook, where people have been going back to the office because there's mass layoffs, everyone knows you want to be near the center of power. If you're worried about getting laid off, you want to be there as much as you can first thing in the morning to late at night. But ironically, the executives who you probably want FaceTime with, they're not there. They're in Tel Aviv. They're in London. I think Mark Zuckerberg is in Hawaii right now. So that's what's kind of wild. I think that's more of a tech-specific problem. Um, I think Wall Street's a very different game. But that's that's really tricky because, yeah, as you know, people don't want to necessarily be in the office every day. And if you have that kind of latitude and that power that a lot of these senior executives do, they're taking advantage of it. Catherine, you mentioned the Make It piece, which I think has done well for us online today. Would you, if you were in a fresh interview, first round, would you bring remote work up? Is that the kiss of death? Um, I don't think it's the kiss of death, but I do think it's a trade-off question. Um, and how I would frame it is, if you want a job, any job, wait on asking about remote work. But if remote work is a make or break issue for you, if it is high on your priority list, then absolutely put that question out there so you know if this is a company worth spending more time in. And I think I would completely agree with Lydia, what you said, that a lot of this is about power dynamics. Workers, uh, managers, leaders, technologists, um, people at all you know stages of companies that feel like they have the leverage um, are often making work work for them. And um, employers are doing their best when they feel like they have the upper hand or they have the power to offer those carrots, the, you know, pull out those sticks, like withholding bonuses, to try and corral everyone else in line. It's a great discussion. Fascinating to see how, how the workplace is evolving in the wake of uh, coming out of COVID. Uh, Lydia, Catherine, thanks so much. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Meantime, worker discontent is also manifesting itself abroad. Anger is growing in France after President Macron was cleared to raise the country's retirement age. NBC News correspondent Ali Arouzi is live in Paris. Ali, talk to us about the situation on the ground. Hey, Carl. Well, you know, that, that uh, crucial court hearing was uh, decided in favor of Macron. He's now able to push those pension age from 62 to 64, which is a very unpopular move in this country. Most of the polls in this country, over 62% of the people don't favor the, the pension going up, and they support the protests, they support the strikes. Uh, but yesterday was a very, very violent day here in Paris, and obviously throughout March was. And today, you know, we were outside uh, City Hall, and we were expecting the place to to erupt when that decision came down and that didn't happen there were about a thousand protesters outside city hall when the decision came through they dispersed uh, pretty quickly the paris police say that about a hundred arrests have been made tonight and there were small pockets of protest throughout the city but um, it was it was pretty small compared to what's been going on here people i think may have resigned themselves to the fact that this is now law the tone has been set and and, and and that's what's going forward because the constitutional committee which is the, the highest constitutional body in france uh, has basically decided the fate of this bill and it can't be appealed anymore there's just one small caveat left and that's one of the left-wing uh, groups here tabled a motion 
for a referendum. Now that committee is going to consider that referendum. They'll give an answer on that on the 3rd of May, but it's highly unlikely they're going to allow the referendum to come through once they've approved this bill because it's going to be counterintuitive for them. The one thing to look out for here, Carl, is that the unions here are really upset about this and they said they're not going to back down. So 1st of May is Labour Day and they're calling for all of the workers and students and young people that have been out on the streets uh, protesting this bill to come out as a big show of force. But if you look at the track record here, in March there were about 1.3 million people out on the streets. Over the last few days, up until yesterday, several hundred thousand considerably less today. You're getting the feeling that the momentum in this is starting to deflate and people are resigning themselves to the fact that this is law, it's not going to be appealed and they've just got to get on with it. But, you know, these things can be unpredictable. Ali, you, you point out the pressure that Macron's been under domestically, but here in the States, the whole conversation is about his recent trip to Beijing and his interview where he basically said that Europe doesn't need to follow the U.S. blindly into China policy. How's that being received in Paris? Well, they're not really looking at that very much. I mean, Macron is trying to put out an image of business as usual. Another day at the office, he visited Notre Dame this morning before he went there. The whole stance he's taken in about Taiwan and not having to follow the U.S. lead hasn't really made any waves here. People here are really focused on this pension reform. They're not looking out at anything else outside of this country. But he very much wants to show that this is something that he has done it was completely necessary to balance the books in this country. There was no alternative. And now it's time to focus on other measures he wants to get, uh, get through while he's president and a lot of his foreign initiatives that he wants to be very front and center in. So Macron is looking beyond this pension reform, but the French people are still incredibly irritated about it. Ali Rouzi, up late for us tonight in Paris. Ali, thanks so much, as always. Still ahead, how next week's Fox Dominion voting systems trial could transform the Murdoch empire as we know it. Stay with us. Welcome back. The landmark trial between Fox News and Dominion voting systems set to begin on Monday. And unfortunately for anyone who wanted to catch a peek, the trial will not be televised. The judge has banned audio and video recordings from the courtroom. $1.6 billion in the future of libel law are on the line, but what will this all mean for the Murdoch family and their empire? Let's take it to our panel. With us tonight, Vanity Fair contributing editor and CNBC contributor Bethany McLean and founding partner, senior correspondent for Puck News, Dylan Byers. It's great to see you both. Thanks for the time tonight. Bethany, you know, there's a whole camp of people who can't really believe we're actually here, that we're talking about jury selection. Have you been able to figure out how it got this far, how Fox let it get this far? I actually don't understand why they didn't settle. And my view on this, I'm going to be a little bit controversial and say, I'm not sure the trial itself matters that much because so much of the damaging evidence has already come out. I mean, no, the trial itself is not going to be great for Fox, but nor has all of the discovery that's already come out. And I can't understand why they wouldn't put a stop to it. I guess if you were really cynical, you would say they don't have that much to lose in the trial. And it's better to roll the dice and show their audience that they fought and that they said these these charges weren't weren't valid than it is to um, to to cough up the money and settle. Dylan, that's the way, 
what Bethany just said about not having much to lose is exactly what people point to uh, when they say that their credibility among the faithful is not going to get chipped away at. Well, that's right. And look, in terms of what they have to lose, I would say financially, uh, it's very hard for me to see how they lose $1.6 billion. Uh, I don't think that claim is going to hold in terms of the actual amount of the damages. But there is that reputational damage. There is, uh, like Bethany said, all of the incredible evidence that has already come out. And I think the, the answer to the question, why haven't they settled? They've tried to settle and they haven't settled because Dominion, I think, recognizing that it's probably not going to get $1.6 billion, does see an opportunity to exact uh, some revenge and some damage on Fox News and on its reputation. And, and in many ways, they have already done that. But the, the, core, the core issue here surrounding the entirety of this case, and indeed why Fox finds itself in this position in the first place, is because increasingly we live in two different Americas, where depending on your political persuasion and your media intake, you might, believe, you might not believe the facts. You might not believe what's actually true. And so that question is, do, do Fox News viewers fundamentally care about this? Are they fundamentally going to care if the jury finds Fox liable for defamation? And I'm not convinced that they will. Bethany, when you think about what's on the line, right, we could talk about the Fox model, right, and operationally what they have to lose, as you said. You can talk about Murdoch and his legacy at, the, at, this, at this age. Or there's, uh, as we suggested in the open, libel law and, and the future of how we think about reporting. What do you think is the most significant going into this? Well, I think we journalists might have a fair amount to lose, and so we should be careful about rooting for um, a Dominion victory. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. I, I think the facts that have come out are pretty horrifying as someone who started her career in fact-checking the fact that Fox overrode its, uh, its, its brain room, its own fact-checkers who said that there was, quote, no evidence of widespread fraud and went ahead and did this anyway. It's, 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 it's terrifying. But there's still a big issue in the case as to whether Fox, Fox News Network itself is liable or whether Fox Corporation is liable. So this means Murdoch himself, despite evidence of his involvement in some of this, may slip away legally. And I think, as Dylan said, the number won't be $1.6 billion. It'll be a lot smaller, even if it's a pretty big number. Fox Fox can afford it. I think the damage is done in terms of Murdoch's legacy. Now, I say that with a, with a, little, with a little caveat that there <laughs> could be some really awful stuff we still haven't heard, right? But a lot of the damage has done, is, is, is done. So I think the really big question is what this means for, for journalists. And there have been some, there's some slightly, I'm going to say, scary things in the judges um, ruling for summary judgment, you know, he he didn't give Fox um, credit for saying this was opinion. He said this is this is this is this is facts, and so I think that should should strike fear into the heart of opinion writers everywhere. And I, you know, again, I think Fox's missteps were big in this, but but nonetheless, there are real issues here about that should trouble journalists. I think Dylan, how much next week is the conversation going to turn among observers to who may take the fall? If, in fact, as Bethany suggests, Murdoch is able to somehow slip away. Oh, I think that'll be a major question. And I think once you strip away all of the noise about the, you know, the emails and the text messages between, say, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, et cetera, and you get down to the heart of, of where Dominion actually sees defamation here, you're, you're really talking in almost every instance about three hosts, Lou Dobbs, Janine Pirro and Maria Bartiromo. Um, 
fundamentally the question is going to be, did they uh, uh, did they defame Dominion? Did they do so knowingly or at least with a sort of reckless disregard for the truth? And then I think the argument that Fox lawyers will make is that if it was just them and not others at the network, you can't pin it on the network uh, as a whole. I don't think Dominion's lawyers will, will stand for that. I'm not sure the judge will stand for that. Right. And indeed, a lot of this contemporaneous evidence from Rupert Murdoch calling a lot of these statements crazy uh, suggests that Fox as an organization bears the responsibility for this. So, so indeed, who takes the fall will be the fundamental question here, I think, going forward. Dylan, uh, Bethany, we'll be relying on both your reporting and your, and your insights uh, next week. Thanks so much for the time tonight. Have a good weekend. Still ahead, uh, the new mess for Boeing 737 MAX jet. Will the hot seat get hotter for the CEO? We're back in a moment. Welcome back. An ugly 24 hours for Boeing could see even more rough air in the days ahead. This halt of the 737 MAX delivery due to incorrectly installed parts hammered the stock today. Shares closed down more than 5%. And shares of Spirit Aerosystems, the supplier of the jet parts in question, fell more than 20%. While there are no safety concerns to jets currently in service, American Ryanair Southwest have all said they will be assessing their fleets for travel impact. Boeing already has a delivery backlog of 3,585 MAX planes. That's according to the website. And it all follows recent news that Boeing's board denied CEO David Calhoun a $7 million performance bonus because of delays with their new 777X jet. So could this latest tit for Boeing put Calhoun's job in jeopardy? Joining us to discuss, Jeff Sonnenfeld, Senior Associate Dean at the Yale University School of Management, and Kyle Bailey, a former pilot and FAA safety representative. Gentlemen, it's great to have you. Jeff? Here we are again. How much does this undo some of the progress Calhoun's made? It, it definitely throws some turbulence his way. I think people who are Boeing critics must say, is this company just plain crazy? Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it, there's a problem here with history. Of course, as you just mentioned, the 777s and the bonus issues. Uh, and But he did an awfully good job of piloting back, uh, of course, into a positive, uh, strong cash position. They may uh, almost have us $5 billion was projected to be the end of this year. They've got the good backup orders, as you said. So that was encouraging. But his supply issues are a real problem. And by the way, he did all that, taking them back to profitability without having China uh, as a customer right now. Yeah. Uh, but the, the supply issues way over-dependent on, on, on spirit. It makes no sense. Kyle, the nicest thing I saw today was a line that said, at least the problems seem to be getting smaller in scope. The bad news, of course, is that the problems just keep coming in, in any kind of form. What did you make of today's news? You know, that is very true. But one thing I have to say, this we have to keep in mind, this is a problem on the supplier and it's not Boeing. Although Boeing does have the, uh, the responsibility for selecting the appropriate suppliers, this is a problem that the supplier identified. But... Obviously, it does fall on the plate of the CEO. It does raise the question then, Kyle, whether or not we're in a period where we're relying too much on suppliers, right? Or too much outsourcing somewhere the chain of supply is breaking down. And you could, I think, legitimately place that at Boeing's feet. Or do you not agree? You know, you could. But, you know, in, in fact, with COVID, I mean, there was a tremendous shortage of suppliers and supplies and parts. So we are coming off the heels of COVID. And, you know, in fairness to the current CEO, a lot of this stuff, the, 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 the previous uh, incidents with the 737 MAX of two years ago, uh, that was his predecessor. So he in inherited a lot of 
the stuff from the past CEO and those performance bonuses that we see that he might be missing, uh, the board clearly saw that as well when they were uh, designing his contract. Uh, Jeff, you know, you think about how much the industry needs fresh aircraft, right? We're already in a constrained period. These airlines can't grow. Uh, they're having to cut some routes for what's a busy travel, summer travel season. Airbus is, is doing quite well in terms of their deliveries. The Chinese are learning how to make planes better. I guess in, just in terms of supply in the industry with metal, what this may, not, not this particular instance, but collectively what it means, Boeing's troubles. Uh, I think your questions are very astute, and I agree with Kyle. They've outsourced way too much. Uh, this guy is a, is a wonderful stabilizer. David Calhoun uh, inherited a difficult set of problems, drafted off the board. He didn't undermine his predecessor. It was great of him to take this on. But this diversification of supply is a problem. You mentioned Airbus. Airbus doesn't have this dependence at all on this company. There are 11 other contractors that can make fuselages. Frankly, Airbus makes a lot of their own fuselages. Boeing should do the same. 60% of Spirit's uh, revenues come from one company, Boeing. That's a problem. They have literally uh, three times the dependence on Spirit that that that, that you know that the comp competition has, especially Airbus. Right. That's a problem. They should have diversified supply. And the timing is terrible, by the way. The shareholders meeting, of course, is this Tuesday. Yep. Uh, finally, Kyle, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to have covered airlines in a former life. And the saying among a lot of pilots was, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. Do you think most pilots still feel that way? You know, I'm, you know, uh, if, if I were buying a $150 million airplane for myself or for, uh, for, for my airline, I certainly uh, probably would opt for Airbus because it's prob problem free right now. And uh, they, they've made a, a phenomenal product. Gentlemen, we'll see what happens next week. Obviously, an incredible story in aerospace today. Jeff, Kyle, thanks. Coming up, why the feds have seized nearly a billion dollars worth of goods coming into the U.S. in just 10 months. Nearly a billion dollars, that's the value of goods the feds have seized at U.S. ports of entry over suspected ties to forced labor. That, according to recent data from Customs and Border Protection, lots of companies stand to lose millions while their goods remain in custody. CNBC's Andrea Day joins us now. Andrea, good to see you. Good to see you, too, Carl. So we went inside one of America's largest ports and saw firsthand this mountain of goods being detained, everything from solar panels to bedding to floor tiles from some of the biggest brand names. Those companies now scrambling to prove their supply chain is clean. Take a look. Wall to wall. Millions of dollars worth of solar panels on its way into the U.S. and all stopped in its tracks. An overwhelming amount of cargo. Over here, a load of xanthan gum. It's a 40-foot container full. This is a top priority for CPP and for the department. And on this side of the warehouse, boxes and boxes of vinyl floor tiles. Halted. This is not just a supply chain security issue for us. It is an economic security issue for the country. Right now we're in a warehouse where we conduct examinations. Our cameras got exclusive access to Customs and Border Protection's battle to stop products produced with slave labor. We're probably holding somewhere in the vicinity of 200 or so full container loads of this commodity, about $15 million. All of it shipped to the port of New York, Newark, and all of it detained. 
the team here at the port enforcing the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, ensuring goods made with forced labor in the Xinjiang region of China do not enter the United States. This is modern-day slavery. American companies now forced to deal with the consequences of a tainted supply chain. It is challenging, especially when your supply chains go into China. Anne-Marie Highsmith oversees trade at CBP headquarters in Washington, D.C., making the issue even more challenging for American companies. The Chinese government has taken affirmative steps to obfuscate those supply chains and prevent businesses from learning uh, the conditions under which those products are manufactured. Her message to American businesses. You need to know your supply chain. During our visit at the port, 916 40-foot shipping containers filled with merchandise were under investigation. That represents about $60 million. And since late June 2022, nearly a billion dollars worth of goods halted at the port. Topping the list, electronics, apparel, footwear, and textiles. So how does CBP track merchandise back to the region? It's a combination of intelligence, information that's gathered from a variety of sources, all feeding into our expert cargo targeting systems. We can't reveal any of the corporate names we saw detained. That info is protected by the Trade Secret Act, which says disclosing it could impact CBP's ability to enforce the law, as well as the company's reputation. All of the manufacturers we saw have been hit with detention notices, like this. They have 30 days to come back to us and prove to us that these were produced without forced labor. Out of more than 3,000 shipments detained since last summer, about one-third has been released to date. While a company works to prove it's not in violation of the new law, it's faced with another cost, storage fees. This is one of 80 warehouses that are bonded to store high-risk cargo. Customs gave CNBC cameras exclusive access to one of the warehouses, but asked us not to reveal its exact location. In this warehouse, about $20 million worth of solar panels being detained by CBP because of suspected ties to forced labor. Solar panels are a big issue. The polysilicon is sourced out of the uh, Xinjiang region. Angela Santos is an attorney dealing with forced labor issues every day. Her clients, public and private companies in the solar, fashion, energy, and automotive industries. They've received detentions. They just don't know if their supply chain includes goods produced with forced labor. And this is so, so tough to navigate because the company can literally have thousands and thousands of direct suppliers, and even more under that first tier. So say we're talking about a simple button-down shirt, for example. There can be suppliers for the thread and for the dye, more for the buttons. And Carl, that list goes on and on. You wouldn't believe it. Is the only solution here to stop using Chinese suppliers, period? I don't think that's the answer, because if you look at the value of the most recent shipments that CBC, that Customs has detained at the port, they're mostly Malaysia and Vietnam. Now, that sounds surprising, right? It's not China, you might think. So why is that? It's because CB um, Customs has some reason to believe that those products coming in from Malaysia and Vietnam were, have raw ingredients from the Xinjiang region in China. So that's why there's this connection. So this supply chain is so convoluted and certainly tough for corporations to deal with oh, right man, now be, and costly. Yeah, it must be very hard to be a customer right now. Absolutely. Uh, Andrea, great story. Andrea Day tonight. Sure thing. Still to come, the NBA playoffs tip off tomorrow. Not in them, Mark Cuban's Dallas Mavericks. 
But that's not stopping his team from getting a rare and big-time fine. We'll explain when we come back. The NBA playoffs are scheduled to tip off tomorrow, but there's already controversy off the court. Today, the NBA fined Mark Cuban's Dallas Mavericks $750,000 for what it calls conduct detrimental to the league, a.k.a. tanking. Last week, the Mavs rested key players during an elimination game against the Chicago Bulls, their second to last of the regular season. Mavericks eventually lost, knocking them out of playoff contention. The NBA determined the Mavericks violated the NBA's player resting policy and demonstrated through actions and public statements the organization's desire to lose the game in order to improve the chances of it keeping its first-round pick in the draft. For reaction, let's bring in senior NBA insider for Stadium and the Athletic, Sham Sharania, also a FanDuel partner and the co-host of Run It Back for FanDuel TV. Sham, it's great to have you. Um, are, are observers snickering about this, or is this actually serious stuff going on in the league? It's somewhat serious, but I think when you look at this, it is a drop in the bucket from Mark Cuban. He's the league's leader in terms of ownership that has gotten fined throughout his history and also the history of owners. So for him, he's no stranger to getting fined. But the number one rule when you're arresting players or so-called tanking for draft positioning is you don't talk about it publicly. You don't make a big deal about it. And I think what we saw with the Mavericks is how public it became. Um, it, it really impacted the fact that the league ended up coming down with this fine today and making an example out of the Mavericks. But a handful of teams this year late down the stretch took similar approaches to figure out as far as draft odd and, and positioning, how they can better uh, put themselves in position to get a higher draft pick. And this year's draft and the Mavericks had a top 10 protected pick. So they took a similar approach, uh, rested Kyrie Irving, Luka Dodgers, their two star players down the stretch to essentially purposely lose games. And so I think this was just the first time this season where it was so public and a team was actually talking about it. And thus you see a fine. Yeah. I, so I wonder if the message to Mark is, don't talk about it, or if you actually think behavior changes in terms of your, your, your personnel management, your clock management, which obviously you wouldn't want to see a league in which everybody did this at the bottom of their division at the end of a season. Yeah, no question. You, you don't want a team to be so upfront and so open about it. I mean, if the Mavericks had put it on injury and Kyrie Irving dealt with plantar fasciitis down the stretch, playing at an elite level, Luka Doncic, they're all world star. He also dealt with some thigh issues. If they put it on injuries, then maybe you, you, you don't see this fine. But then you, you, you talk about the organizational decision to essentially shut guys down, play Luka Doncic just one half of, of a game and then sit him or one quarter of a game and then sit him. It just optically did not look good, and the NBA came down hard today. Yeah. When you think about sports, right, and leagues and owners, um, how, is the, how is the relationship different? In other words, could this have ever happened in the NFL, or are you dealing with maybe fewer teams, richer owners? Are there, what's the dynamic that would make that different, if it were different? Well, I think the, in the NBA, and, and it's so personal, and, and, and these guys, we, we all know the players, we know the owners, and a lot of it is, is social media driven as well, and there's such an interest in, in social media, in the NBA, in its players, in, in even its owners, and Mark Cuban, for sure, being one of the front-facing owners, he this isn't the first time he's found himself in controversy. This isn't the first time he's gone at the league. Him and the league have had a long-standing back and forth, whether it be on key systematic issues, uh, key issues with the game, key referee issues. Yep. Earlier this season, Mark Cuban put in a, uh, you know, he was very vocal about referees and officials 
and how, how he felt the Mavericks were being mistreated. Oh. So not the first time these two have gone at it. Finally, 30 seconds left. Who do you like in the playoffs? Well, I think this year there's so much parity. I mean, when you look at out West, Denver, Memphis, Sacramento, Phoenix, the Clippers, Warriors, Lakers, all seven teams believe they have a chance to win a championship. In the East, Bucks, Celtics, Sixers, Cavaliers, same thing. So the, the amount of parity, it's a lot this year. <laughs> it's going to be fun to watch. Shams, thanks so much. Appreciate it very much. We'll see you later. Thank you. Uh, do you know what happened 111 years ago tonight? The Titanic hit a massive iceberg. And as you know, two hours and 40 minutes later, the ship hailed as unsinkable sank. 1,500 people aboard lost their lives, making it one of the deadliest peacetime maritime disasters in history. More than a century later, divers continue to explore the wreckage at the bottom of the Atlantic. Ocean Gate Expeditions filmed this 4K video of the wreckage, and the company is now offering you the chance to see the sunken ship. But it will cost you a quarter of a million dollars. If you can also spend that kind of cash on a piece of Titanic memorabilia, a plan of the ship used in the investigation into the disaster is now up for auction. It's expected to sell for around $250,000. Pretty fascinating and one of the most incredible stories, obviously, in maritime history. That's the last call for tonight. Brian, we'll be back on Monday. American Greed starts now.